Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews. Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Lou Figaro. And welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. On this episode, we are joined by a first-time guest co-pilot, Mr. Sean Ellis. Sean, welcome to the R4 Podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, really, really an honor to be amongst you right now. Great to have you. Yep. So before we begin the podcast, it's time to salute our new patrons. Joining our $10 legend tier, we have... Sean Ellis. Well, shit, here you are, man. I can thank you personally. <laughs> well, hey, and, and, and you know what, man? I'm, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I did that, and then the next thing I saw was you did an episode on fish, and I almost rescinded it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Well, I'm, I'm glad you stuck around. Uh, you know what? I am, too, because I never thought of fish from the Zappa angle. So, Lou, you you changed more than two minds that day. <laughs> All right. That's good to know. Yeah. So thanks a lot for supporting the show, man. It does mean a lot. Hey, thanks for doing it, man. I mean, it. it I was getting tired of the murder podcasts. I was starting to feel pretty dark. <laughs> And if you're a listener and you'd like to help support the show like Sean, head on over to our Patreon page and select one of our four tiers to make a monthly donation. Uh, There are bonus episodes to listen to, and there are other goodies to explore, and we massively appreciate everyone who becomes a patron. But hey, all of you listeners rock. We're glad you're here. So on this episode, we're going to review the Verve Pipes 1996 album Villains. Sean, you picked this album, so tell us how you discovered the Verve Pipe in this particular album. Uh, well, I, I discovered them with this particular album. It was uh, the summer of 96. I was 25 years old, and I worked at a place that uh, you know sends out supplies to grocery stores. I, I stood in the back of, of diesel trucks with a tractable conveyor belt, bringing me boxes of sodas and candy. And so, uh, you know, since I didn't have a lot of interaction with the other employees, I brought a Walkman to work one day because the easiest way in the world to get me to do anything is to let me pick the music. I will shovel shit all day long if I get to control the radio. (laughs) I've been into music all my life, and I brought this uh, Walkman to work with a cassette mixtape I've made of Tool, Mr. Bungle, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Pink Floyd are my favorite band, so they took up half of it, and that was just one song. Uh, One night I was kind of sick of all my tapes, so I turned on the radio and discovered to my surprise the Top 40 pop station was now a Top 40 rock station or, you know, whatever you want to call it. But they were playing Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, The Refreshments, Dishwalla, Tonic. And uh, one night they played this song that had this creepy kind of sounding keyboard intro it immediately got my attention and I, I was in between trucks. So I, I had the opportunity to light up a cigarette and check out this song I'd never heard before. And this band I'd never heard before. And, uh, it was probably for, I, I have a really poppy sensibility and that was probably the best song I heard that summer. And, you know, did a little digging, found out who they were Fast forward a few years, and I'm DJing at a gentleman's club, 
And one of the dancers has had a slow night and has the integrity to tell me, look, I, I, I didn't make enough money to tip you. Well, she danced to a couple of songs off of this album. And parallel with this, I, I had made a return to a band that I had helped form in the summer of 96. And there were a couple of songs from this album on the set list. And our bass player had said, uh, this album has the best drum sound I've ever heard recorded. If you get a chance to get it, get the whole album. So I knew she had it and didn't have any money to tip me. And I mean, it's a mercenary business, man. Hmm. So I told her, hey, that Verve Pipe CD will make an excellent tip. And she agreed with me. And that album, just front to back, for me, it was kind of like... Uh, it was kind of like listening to Dark Side of the Moon. It 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 was it had a cohesive sound. Whether or not it's a concept album is open to speculation, but uh, every song had a hook that grabbed me. So, a couple of years later, I'm in a CD shop and I discover the CD they did before it and the CD they did after it, and I bought them both, took them home, and listened to all three albums. Going, man why isn't this band just big as fuck? Their uh, lead singer went solo, and he does this great thing where uh, he sends word out through his fan club that he's doing this, and if you can afford the fee, he'll show up at your house with his acoustic guitar and play in your backyard or your living room, whatever you invite your friends over, you have a cookout. Brian Vanderark shows up, plays for an hour, hour and a half, and and then vamooses. And that just kind of kept me plugged in. I'm like, that's that's really interesting. They went a little uh I guess you'd call it adult contemporary around 2000. And the song craft is still there, but the guitars were just really tame. I think on their album, I think it's called Underneath, I uh, believe it was produced by one of the guys from Fountains of Wayne. So they they were kind of headed sort of in a Stacy's mom direction, I suppose. They ended up doing an album of children's songs, and that's something uh, Chris Ballou from Presidents of the United States of America did too. I guess that's what all our heroes are doing as they hit old age, is they're doing children's songs now. <laughs> But that's as far as I've I've followed them to this day. I know Brian Vander Ark has done some acting. He was involved with a film called Dead and Breakfast, which uh, the guy who plays Negan on Walking Dead, I think he's in that movie too. They were involved with the movie Rockstar. Brian Vander Ark played a member of the the heavy metal band, I think. So, you know, these these guys have gotten around. They do things. It's just, you know, you say the verve pipe and people go, oh, the guys that sing Bittersweet Symphony. No. <laughs> yeah. We, we had that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, somehow I knew you guys did. <laughs> I felt a grave disturbance in the force. Lou, where do you come in? Um, my wife is usually pretty good at picking stuff. Well, used to be really good at picking stuff. She discovered Alice in Chains for me. Uh, she, at the time... Back then, she was attending Seton Hall University here in New Jersey. And uh, they had a college radio station called WSOU, and it was pirate radio. That's what they called it for the Seton Hall Pirates. 
And they were playing all kinds of cool stuff on there that we weren't hearing anywhere else on any other type of radio. That's really where I was getting all of my bands from uh, when I was in college or art school. And she picked up Alice in Chains. She said she recommended Soundgarden to me. And all of these bands were, you know, I mean, she was hitting them out of the park. Uh, I had always been a really big Pearl Jam fan since the beginning, 90. 91 92 whenever that uh that tape came out so around 96 we were married by that point uh we got married in 93 and um she recommended this verve pipe cd and i bought it and i listened to it a few times that song was everywhere on the radio yeah so um it kind of just sat in my record collection forever. And fast forward, I don't know how many years is it? And Aaron says, hey, we're doing the Verve Pipe in a couple of weeks. You interested? <laughs> I have that. But I couldn't think of any song on it at all. So I had to go back and listen to it. And uh, really, that's where I come in. Was the, I bought it brand new, and it sat in my record collection forever. And um, there you go. All right. Well, this is super easy for me. I'd only ever vaguely heard of this band, and before checking this album out, I would have said the Verve Pipe. Don't they do that Bittersweet Symphony song? I really did think <laughs> that. But seriously, I'd literally never heard any of this band's music prior to prepping for this podcast, so there you go. That just tells you I wasn't listening to the radio while at the time, because I didn't know a single song off this album. So now I'll give you some basic facts about this record, and basic facts are readily available on your Wikipedia page. Villains is the second studio album by American rock band The Verve Pipe, released on March 26, 1996 on RCA Records. It was produced by Jerry Harrison and was recorded from 1995 to 1996 at Studio D and The Plant, Sausalito, California, and Ocean Way Recording, Hollywood, California. It reached number 24 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified platinum by the RIAA. And here's the band's lineup card. We've got Brian Vander Ark on lead vocals and rhythm guitar, Brad Vander Ark on bass guitar and backing vocals, Donnie Brown on drums and backing vocals, A.J. Dunning on lead guitar and backing vocals, and Doug Corella on keyboards and percussion. Okay, let's begin a track-by-track -track analysis of this album. We open the proceedings with Barely, If At All, written by Brian Vander Ark. Sean, what do you think? Uh, for starters, I love this as an opening for both a song and an album. It almost sounds like the band was in the middle of doing something else, and then you pressed play, and it's like, oh, shit, we got to play. And you, you just get hit with this wall of guitars. 
AJ Dunning and Brian Vanderark kind of weave around each other. Sometimes they play parts that complement each other. Sometimes they play the same thing. But either way, they get they get this web of guitar cacophony that you know Billy Corgan needed twenty seven channels of guitar and Butch Vig to pull it off. And I love Siamese Dream uh, lyrically. Man, I think the song was written by Hedonism Bot. It's kind of grandiose uh, to me, and and this is kind of a theme with Brian Vanderark. He he comes off simultaneously full of himself and also full of self-loathing. And you, you'll see that unfold as we go through here. But, uh, you know, he, he starts the song off bitching about a bargain basement lover blowing away his last dandelion. I'm guessing that's a nice way of saying that she's getting on his last tit. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a friend who turned me on to the show House, and one night I dropped by his house and said, can we, cu- can we watch a couple of episodes? I need to feel like it's okay to be a dick. I've had a rough day. <laughs> And to me, this album is, you know, if you don't have time to watch something, you throw the album on and it makes you feel like it's okay to be a douchebag because every character in this song is, is just a terrible human being. There's a lyric towards the end of the song. He says, uh, she with her hand between our lips gave me what we now have in common. And I'm like, what's that about? What, it, like, did she give him herpes? <laughs> Not to not to skip ahead too quickly, but in the next song, the opening line mentions uh, uh, suffering this open kiss. Like, is this his way of letting the groupies know that they're going to get blisters if they bang him? <laughs> as 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 the song fades out, you know, the band kind of simmers in the background while the guitars play these sort of bluesy licks over each other. No one will ever accuse them of being a funk band, but they know how to cook. And it's one of those bands where everybody, even the drummer, sings. So as as we get into things, you're going to hear counter melodies along with the harmonies. It's almost, um, especially on some of their early stuff, to get almost Beach Boys with it. But I I thought this was a great way to start an album, and that's what I got for that one. Lou? Well, it's grungier than I remembered or expected. Um, it's got a real mid nineties sound. It's it maybe screaming trees, Mark Lanigan kind of vocals. It's got a good riff, uh, the harmony verse. It's a real navel gazer. It's got that hint of attempted jamming at the end that kind of pricked up my ear and got my attention. And then I get totally disappointed because it just ends in the most cowardly way you can for an opening track. It fades out. Right before a jam, too. It's, it was like, what, what are they thinking? Um, it, it, it sounds like the one Jeff Buckley song I liked, but, <laughs> but not as good. <laughs> okay, so within five seconds of listening to this, my first thought was, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I mean, well, it's got crunchy guitars, melodic bass, and lightly syncopated drumming, and it's got a singer who sounds in the vein of Eddie Vedder light, or more closely, someone like Scott Weiland is really who I was thinking of. Brian Vander Ark switches to falsetto in the chorus, so you don't confuse that with the verses, and there are some ooh backing vocals as the track winds down and softly fades out, like Lou was complaining about. 
Lyrically, I'm picking up that the guy's got a girlfriend he's really not that into. He's scraping the bargain basement for this one. Not a great foundation for a relationship. And that's very much how I feel about this song. It's got grunge elements to it, and it wants to be a Pearl Jam tune, but it doesn't have an ounce of the personality of PJ. I don't hate this. It's just meh to me. The next track is Drive You Mild, written by Brian Vander Ark. Lou, your thoughts? Uh, this definitely gives off a heavy core era STP vibe, like all the way down the line to the guitar solo. The volume swells, that Wyland style moaning that he does. Um, it's more like a groan, like that Scott Stapp groan. It's a good tune. I, I like the, the descending power corded riff that they do, that dank, 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 right? That's, that's this one. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's got a good bar band kind of drums driving everything. Um, it's probably a very good live tune. Where'd I put all those old STP CDs? I packed them away a long time ago when I lost interest in them, too. Um, <laughs> good tune, though. It is, it's a decent, it got my, my head knob. You know, I started to look into my belly button with this one. <laughs> Sean. Okay, I'm uh, I'm definitely in a critical minority of one, not just in the room, but probably on the entire planet. That opening, whatever he's doing with his voice, that Vetter-esque, Scott Stapp-esque, to me, it, it reminds me of Paul Rogers and Eddie Vetter. Here's a guy who doesn't need words to sing something that keeps your attention. Uh, maybe moves you a little bit. I do like this song, but... Aaron, like you said, and this was already in my notes, um, I can't tell what's the verse and what's the chorus, but I really kind of don't care. I dig the melodies, and I, I, I was a theater kid in high school, so I'm always thinking of some sort of visual that goes along with the song, and when those creepy vocal harmonies start coming in at the end, it's like, oh, wait, wait. You know, he seems mild, but you don't want to hang around for him too long. Towards the end of the song, he, he even acknowledges that he should drive you wild, but he sounds like that's the furthest thing from his mind that he's actually going to do. And forgive me for fawning over this. For as hard as this song rocks, the lyrics are about a guy full of ennui and apathy. And I like that contrast. Uh, I'm a Libra, so I, I like balance and symmetry. And uh, uh, this song's got it for me. It's not my favorite song on the album, but... I might have opened the album with this song just because, you know, that that is a really good drum sound. And a shout out to the bass player who told me this was the greatest drum sound he'd ever heard. Those are samples. And I know that because I watched a video where the guy who mixed this album not only said they were samples, but like they were the same samples he used when he ra uh, did a Rage Against the Machine album. And it's kind of kind of weird to think of the Verve Pipe and Rage Against the Machine having the same drum sound. 
But if you A-B them against each other, it's kind of like that. And I don't know if you picked up on it, but the Jerry Harrison that produced this album is the guitarist from Talking Heads. And he did a solo album in uh, 88 or 89 called Casual Gods. And I went running to it, and you can tell this album was produced by Jerry Harrison because Casual Gods has a similar style. To me, credit is due to Jerry Harrison because I've listened to the album before this and the album after this. And the album before this, you can tell it didn't have a budget. The album after this was produced by Michael Beinhorn, and it's abrasive as fuck. And and then I, I guess that's why they went easy listening. They'd done everything else. Aha, clever title, fellas. I get it. You drive us mild, we'll drive you lazy. Fuck me, it's more of the same. A continuation of the first track, that 90s alternative rock sound. Noisy guitars, but no memorable riffs. But wait. There's a Doug Corella organ line running through it, and hey, nice organ, Doug. We get our first taste of A.J. Dunning on a lead guitar solo, and it's competent, but nothing special, just like his guitar tone. And man, Brian Vanderark's voice is the definition of bland. There must have been like 50 guys around at the time who sounded like him. And lyrically, Brian's hit the nail on the head again. He's so boring as fuck that he puts his girl to sleep when he should be exciting her. But thanks, Brian. I take your advice. I'm an old man. I'm ready for my afternoon siesta. The following track is the title track, Villains, written by Brian Vander Ark. Sean, hit us. This song for me is, has got an atmosphere that I can fucking see when this song plays. Like it, it, it takes me to a place that really has nothing to do with the song. But I used to know this uh, hippie chick that was squatting in an old house in Midtown. And like the house was so dilapidated, I don't even remember if it had a proper front door. The screen door was welded shut. You just had to climb where the screen was and it was not anymore and and then you're in this old empty house you go up the stairs and she's just taking over a couple of the rooms and this sounds like something she would have had playing in the background while she was making noodle ramen and you know this was back in 92 so i'm not saying the verve pipe were ahead of their time uh doug corella gets placed prominently in the mix with this his his organ really starts holding it all together around the second verse I love the way in, and, and this is a, this is a tech geek thing, but I love the way the song begins with Brian Vanderark panned hard left on the vocal and hard right with the guitar. But if you listen to his isolated vocal track, you can hear him strumming the guitar live take. That's always hot. Hmm. Uh, but when the organ kicks in and the drums start going, I'm, I'm like, okay, this is cool. Uh, it sounds a little churchy, but I'm digging the organ. And then when A.J. Dunning comes in with that chicka, 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 I'm like, oh, okay, I wasn't expecting that. And the song sort of explodes. 
And uh, Donnie Brown, you know, I, w- I want to give that guy credit. Uh, Chris Lord Alge may have dumped samples on top of his drums, but he played these drum parts. Uh, to me, he's, he's kind of like a Ringo star. You know, he doesn't do the double kick and shit like that. He just knows how to do different things with each limb. And, and he, it feels like he composes actual parts. Brad Vanderark seems to be channeling Paul McCartney, circa paperback writer. The song starts as a whisper, builds to a scream, but it's really just all about a guy getting a headache because he bent over to pick up his dropped mail and stood up too quickly when a hot chick walked by. I've rubbernecked a lot in my life, but I've never had I've I've never had a vision affect me so much that I threw my back out. (laughs) I've seen Brian Vanderark's wife. She's pretty fucking hot. So I'd like to know what he was looking at. Lou. Um, are we talking about the same song? Um, <laughs> uh, they try to sound like a lot of bands on this record. Um, here's Soundgarden and Nirvana. If Nirvana took their meds <laughs> and hired Scott Weiland to sing and hobbled Dave Grohl like Annie Wilkes hobbled <laughs> Paul Sheldon in misery. Um, nah, this guy's not even that good. <laughs> neither is anyone else i mean it it does it gets a little monotonous after a while and it just it it wants me to just hit next wow this one starts even quieter and does a slow build while brian's dull voice i swear is trying to put me to sleep <laughs> come on guy then it does pick up a bit and then there's this deliberately noisy guitar line that runs throughout the song it's very velvet underground ish that I guess makes it a bit more edgy and combined with the keyboards, at least my ear has something different to focus on. But by the end of the track, Brian's screaming, so there's that, a sign of life from the man, but the melodies aren't doing much for me and I'm struggling to really enjoy this. The lyrics to me reference the media, how it's all sensationalist and all they're looking for are the sales. All they care about are the villains that they put on the cover of their magazines and mostly ignore their victims who twist and shout, but not in a good way. Our boy is sick of it. He's losing interest. He's fucking bored again. And I'm bored again. Three songs in and I'm like, this is okay. It's not terrible. But my dick is just a limp noodle so far. I need some musical Viagra desperately. This was the fourth and last single from the album that reached number 24 on the U.S. Billboard Mainstream Rock Tracks chart. The next track is Reverend Girl, written by Brian Vander Ark. But we are in love What do you say? Here we have Alice in Chains around Sap, um, maybe even Jar of Flies. It's not as good as anything else that sounded like it two or three years before this, and it, it doesn't really add anything to it. It's repetitive, rehashed STP by this point, by the ending. Uh, it's, it's a no for me, dog. Sean, tell us why he's wrong. 
So let me just cop to the fact that I'm really not sure I understand this song. I had to look up the word reverend to discover that it doesn't have to be like a religious thing. Uh, The first definition of the word at merriamwebster.com is worthy of reverence. I think this is a song about infidelity, but it's hard to tell. Brian Vanderart kind of writes like early Michael Stipe. Uh, It's like he just wrote a bunch of shit down and cut it up, threw it in the air and, and, and put it back together. But to the and I got no problem with that. But to the extent that I can get any kind of story out of this, uh, it seems like it's about having a lover that's worthy of being revered. But there's someone else on your mind. The line, another lover wakes me. Uh, At first, I thought maybe this is like in the future because he's clearly breaking up with the reverend girl. She's packing her things at three in the morning. God, the neighbors love them. Uh, and he's, uh, again, yeah, yeah, Aaron's going to love this. He's so indifferent and whatever. And those are actual lyrics in the song. The guitar parts almost remind me of like the first Cranberries album or the Sundays. But uh, it's a strange song to me because like, what the fuck is going on here? But I, I think it's about cheating on somebody and he still doesn't seem to feel bad about it. You know, he is a villain after all. So, I mean, for me, the production is what saves this song. I'm not sure what it's about, but I do love singing along with it when it's on. I think it's catchy. I, I do think Brian Vander Ark is one of those guys who's just got a gift for hooks. Believe it or not, this is the first track that actually caught my ear initially, largely due to Brad Vander Ark's brooding bass line. And this, to me, this kind of had an REM vibe to it with the chiming guitar and bigger soaring chorus, except the singer isn't nearly as interesting. It's funny you even mentioned Michael Stipe. I also noticed the drumming in this one. Donnie Brown plays some syncopated beats and also gets in some decent fills. It's, that's pretty good stuff. But man, this dude needs to find someone that rocks his world. These relationships he's in are just not stimulating enough, and he's bored and indifferent to them, kind of like how I feel about this album so far. I will say that this track is the first one I actually like, as opposed to just being okay with it. The following track is Cup of Tea, written by Brian Vander Ark. Graduation Sean, let's have it. Oh, man, I really can't wait to hear your take on this one. So uh, in 2000, I mentioned earlier, a band I was in had a set list, and it included this song. Somehow I missed it. They released it as a single, but I've since seen the video on YouTube, but I never saw it on MTV. I had heard Photograph and loved it. I'd heard The Freshman and was like, "Eh, you know, okay, got to have a ballad, I guess. And so I thought I had a pretty good idea of what to expect when I, I put in the, the practice disc that had this song in it. And when that first guitar rang out, it was like a siren went off in the room. And I was like, whoa, what's this about? And as I started learning the song, and, and I'm going to be a band geek here for a second, uh, 
trying to learn how to play this song is a bit of a challenge because the two guitars appear to be playing in two different keys that shouldn't be working together, but they do for me anyway. You know, I, the only thing I knew to expect from, from this song was the title seemed to imply that he's going to be expressing a preference or lack thereof. And then you get to that line, I guess it's, I guess it's the bridge crash in a wrinkle of steel. We are gone. Will our last breath be a yawn watching them sort the debris? This is not my cup of tea. I mean, this guy's dying in a car crash and he's more concerned about dying of boredom. I, I have, I have a hard time sympathizing with the character, but there's something in the melody that uh, reminded me of something from the early eighties. And this happens again later on in the album. I was able to pin it down uh, that bridge section. There's a sequence of the melody that's very similar to Jack and Jill by radio. And I'm kind of a Ray Parker jr. Fan. So if, if they did it on purpose, I liked the shout out. If they did it by accident, they should just be glad he didn't sue them. <laughs> I, I did like the song, and it, it was great fun to play live. But it was also one of those songs where we're practicing it, and I understand you guys have played in bands, right? Yeah. Lou has. I haven't. Okay. So Lou knows that moment when everybody's looking at each other, and you're going, wait, what are you doing? Because <laughs> this is what I'm doing. <laughs> And every one of us is looking at each other going, I don't know, man, none of this sounds like we're doing what we're supposed to be. But it, it worked. It always came off well live. This is one of my favorite songs on the album. So uh, I'll, I'll fight you over Lou at Lou, but uh, <laughs> you go, man. Let me hear you tear it apart. <laughs> Lou, have at it. Well, it's got a rock and start. The big chords and riff I do like. Um it falls into that dreamy STP ballad. And if I didn't hate Scott Weiland so much, this one could be okay. That angsty Billy Corgan chorus, uh, cup of tea, right out of car. Um, <laughs> it, it comes across as forced. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing, does, a, yeah. I, I'm seeing a pattern here and a formula and I'm really starting to get turned off to it this band is really starting to not be this is not my cup of tea <laughs> and it, some of my very favorite bands are from this exact genre they all do it better though it's it's all just more of the same with this and it's not adding to it i do appreciate the line you mentioned that crash in a wrinkle of steel we are gone uh, it's still not making me give a shit about them though <laughs> Wrinkle of Steel is a clever way to describe a bent car, but yeah, it's kind of hard to give a shit about this guy. <laughs> so this plays the grunge trick of quiet verses and loud choruses, and it pulls it off for the most part. I dig the opening guitar figure with the ascending chords underneath it, and I like the wavy keyboard trill that leads into the verses. Brian does his best Eddie Vedder roar in the chorus, and well, that's a thing. He's not really a terrible vocalist but he's certainly not in the class of the major grunge singers in my opinion tell you what though all these songs deal with the same situations and emotions so far i get it brian you're bored life sucks <laughs> and then you die am i right <laughs> valerie thinks you're an idiot and she's not gonna hang around get your shit together man fuck 
This is actually the second song in a row I kind of like, so we've got that going for us. And this was the second single that reached number 35 on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Tracks chart. The next track is Myself, written by Brian Vander Ark. Take it away. I hear Puddle of Mud in this song, who started Ooh. in like 91, right? Uh, but they came up later on, like nine years later. I can only imagine yeah. that mess that mess of a man. It took him nine years to get famous. Um, I even forget his name, but it, Come West Clean. West Right, right. Um, Come Clean was a great album. I, I loved yeah, it. Fantastic album. So I can only think that somehow they saw a puddle of mud before their record contract and ripped them off too. Cause this sounds like some off come clean. And that came out in 2000. Nope. Nope. I'm wrong. It's blind melon. Oh yeah. There's blind melon in there. <laughs> with some sound garden, especially the chorus. Did you ever fall asleep with the TV on? And dream a bunch of shows like throughout your night, you know, why is Fonzie trying to help me? (laughs) (laughs) Now there's cops with guns. Mark from Mark. (laughs) Anunano. It it was like it was listening to the radio while he was writing all of these songs. Sean. Um, Okay. I mentioned earlier, I'm a fan of the ear candy. I love the way this song begins for starters with a segue out of cup of tea. And then on top of that backwards Hmm. and you, you get that kind of like head rush sort of feel and the band hits you over the head with the first note. And I really love the structure of the parts of this song Everything appears to be filling a gap that something else is leaving. This sounds like the band is firing on all cylinders, knows what each other is doing, and and knows how to, how to how to react to it. Uh, lyrically, I know the woman in this song. She's self-absorbed, but that's part of what makes you want her. She probably screams her own name during sex. <laughs> Everything ties back to her, and if it doesn't tie back to her, she discards it as irrelevant. Whether she's a hippie chick or a socialite, her dad is someone important in the town. And when she dines out, she picks places that have patio dining so that people who don't even come in the restaurant can see that she's there. She's the kind of woman that makes you feel special when she expresses an affection for you because it means you've made her notice something other than herself, if only for a moment. And it's all about her, so when she gives of herself, she's giving you the whole world. At least that's how it's supposed to feel. There does seem to be some snark to Brian Vander Ark's lyrics, so I'm not really sure I know the same chick he does, but they say there's only 15 personality types, and this is probably one of them. 
So we get droning guitars with what sounds like the backwards effects and a nice harmonized flourish at the end of the passage to take us to the verse, along with a decently counterpoint bass line that forms a mid-tempo groove. It's another soft verse that leads to a psychedelic vibe in the chorus with the wah-wah and backwards effects. Brian actually sounds semi-engaged this time. Well, except for the breathy spoken vocals in the breakdown section, but I know it's asking a lot, so I'll take what I can get. You're so vain, Miss Marceau, I bet you think this song is about you. You're so <laughs> egocentric, you're your own hero. But Brian's glad you're here. All his friends deserted him because of you, but why the fuck would you care about that? He's doing okay. I know that because you said so. I dig this one too, so holy fuck nugget, we're on a roll. Right on. The following track is The Freshman, written by Brian Vander Ark. I won't be held responsible. She fell in love in the first place. For the life of me, I cannot remember what made us think that we were wise and we never compromised. For the life of me, I cannot believe we'd ever die. Sean, this was the hit. This was the hit. I've heard at least three different versions of this song, and each one of them is a distinctly different performance. And still none of them are at the actual original recording of the song that they released on their very first album, that when they signed to make this album, they took a couple tracks off of it and made it an EP, and The Freshman was one of them. There's the version that originally appears on the album. There's the version that was on the top 40 stations. And then there's a version that was on the adult contemporary stations. And you want to talk about fucking mild, man. That, that last one on the AC stations, it, it, it was one of those things you pressed play. It started, it just kept going and it didn't do anything. And then it was over. The version that was originally on the album got thrown off and replaced with the top 40 version, which is closer to the album version in terms of intensity, but still kind of weak by comparison to the overall second version, which was the first version for this album. And you can tell it was late in the game because it's produced. I, I think it's produced by uh, uh, a, a different guy. I can't think of his name right now, but it feels like a last minute addition to the album. And, you know, as far as songs about making your girlfriend get an abortion because you don't want to marry her because you knocked her up, you know, I guess you could have uh, worse songs for that. It, it, the, the melody, when, he, when he's singing for the life of me instead of for the life of me, he, uh, it sounds better and it sounds grittier and it sounds nastier. It wasn't written for this album, but it does fit the theme of douchebag protagonists. But that late minute feeling that it has is why I call this one's Sean's hysterically irrelevant track. <laughs> you could take this out and the album would actually be better, I think. Now, I feel like it's dragging the album down before you even get to it because it's the only song you know if you know it and you know it's coming. Lou. There's something about this, that arpeggiated riff, the, the, that open-corded tenderness, 
the soulful, scruffy, sensitive ponytail man lyrics. Sometimes you got to fuck her hard. Sometimes that's just not right to do. Sometimes you gotta make some love, give some fucking smooches too. She can't help responsible. She was touching herself. I can't not make up filthy fucking words to this song. (laughs) (laughs) I'll spare y'all. I hate everything that this song represents. It's stealing from REM, Creed. Not that I'd ever defend fucking Creed. Then I get why I can't stand the song. It sounds like Scott Stapp from Creed. Fuck him too. <laughs> you got to be doing something right if if you could sell a million records and have Tenacious D make fun of you. If I could throw something in real quick, I, you know they made a sequel to this song <laughs> on the next album. It, it was the single they released. The song is called Hero, and the lyrics actually address how much of a jerk Brian Vanderark had to be to make his girlfriend get an abortion, then write a song about it that makes him rich and famous. Well, you know, now you're making me feel bad for not even caring about the lyrics of this thing. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, there's no reason to care about them, really. I mean, you know, it's it's a thing. It happened. Um, To me, the the most interesting part of the lyrics is the uh, she was touching her face is a direct reference to the Divinals video, I Touch Myself, because it happened to be playing in the room on the TV uh, in the room of the song he was writing it in. I knew it! I fucking knew it! Aha! Yeah, you fucking called it true, man. (laughs) This was the big hit single. Holy shit. Quiet arpeggiated guitar and earnest hushed vocals start this masterpiece off. The other instruments sort of slide into the space beginning with the bass and Brown's hi-hat work is up front in the mix and everything stays quiet and restrained because what Brian's singing is really important and this is supposed to be emotional, man. And this song is deep. Our freshman knocked up his girl and she gets an abortion. And later on, his best friend's girl commits suicide. And our freshmen do their best to deflect the guilt and place all the blame on the girls when they know the truth and are haunted by it. I read an interview with Brian Vander Ark that it was actually written about his real-life ex-girlfriend who did have the abortion, but she didn't actually kill herself. Yep. And these are actually pretty good lyrics, and I'm sure this song appealed to the 90s alt-rock whiny-ass kids, but for me, it does not land. I just shrug my shoulders again. There was so much music like this going on at the time that this sounds like one of a hundred other tunes rattling around on the radio. I guess I just had to be there. For the life of me, I don't know how or why, but this was the third single that actually reached number five on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. Huh. The next track is Photograph, written by Brian Vander Ark. Photograph 
Lou, lead us off. What is it about this song name that makes bands mega hits? <laughs> right? And it causes me to shudder with disdain. <laughs> Def Leppard. These guys. Nickelback. Yeah. That's it. That's it. <laughs> These guys are the Nickelback of grunge. <laughs> Wait, that's redundant. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. It, no, you just opened a wormhole, man. I divided by zero. <laughs> That's what this is. No, it's because Nickelback is in grunge. Nickelback is, it's it's like rocking, rollicking, but it's it's so formulaic that you know it's it's that riff, then that bass line. Now, at first, I was like, where the fuck is that from? The closest I could think of is is dance hall days. <laughs> oh, holy shit. Yeah, okay. Right? But but then I realized no, it's it's this song. It's this song. Photograph. Corporate radio has imprinted me with this song in my subconscious. <laughs> For what reason I have no idea, but I have a feeling they're going to play this out of every speaker connected to the internet one day. And every person my age who's ever done acid in their lifetime, our eyes are going to light up like the Terminator. And we're going to start killing commies, or <laughs> Democrats, or, or fighting aliens, or whatever's crawling up our shores with ninja-like precision. As long as it took me to type that out, the song's over, and I'm glad, because I lost interest like I have with Wait. Wait, it's not. It's not. It's Wonderwall. Holy shit. <laughs> oh, it's fuck. You're right. Wonderwall. It's the same thing. Today, it's going to be. It's a, yep, same pro- chord progression. Okay. I hate it even more now. <laughs> Sean. Oh, man. No, I, I, I can still remember the first time I heard that through the headphones standing on the back of a truck. For some reason, my conveyor belt, that I must have been in between loads or something. It was funny because by this point in the summer, by the time Photograph got added to the playlist at this station, the DJs were already referencing the fact that the, the station had been so rigidly formatted, there was maybe 40 songs and I would work, you know, eight, 10, sometimes 12 hour shifts. I knew when the playlist started over again. I, I, the minute I heard that refreshment song, uh, Banditos, when, when I heard Banditos, I'd be like, okay, yeah, this is when I clocked in. Fuck, I'm just coming back from lunch. They need some variety. But then that opening synth line came at me while I was waiting for the, for the next uh, conveyor belt run. And I was like, okay, what's this? And I started going through my head. What, what bands do I know that sound like this? And I couldn't think of anybody with a keyboard. So I figured, you know, I mean, I, I knew it probably was an STP. They don't let keyboards do that. Pearl Jam. They weren't there yet. I mean, they might do that. I think they've got a permanent keyboardist now. Yeah, no, Boom came way later. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it was one of those songs that just, it, it hit me just right. I think it's really about the time and the place. I looked this song up on the internet once and somebody was trying to attribute uh, one of the members of Def Leppard to it, but it, it was the guy they fired, uh, Pete. I uh, can't remember his last name. Willis, Willis, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, yes. Pete Willis's name was written in there, and I was like, man, somebody had their copy of Pyromania fucked up. Hmm. This is one of those songs, I mean, it, the, the first thing that really hit me was the lyrics. If you want beautiful, pitiful, have me in a picture. And I'm like, oh, this guy likes himself. And he spends the whole song trying to get this chick to take this picture. And it, somewhere in there, he does a little navel gazing and, and, and tries to attach it to a, a larger concept. Uh, what really struck me, though, was, was the musical structure. This is one of those songs that should not work. The verse indicates a minor key. The chorus is a major key. And one of my favorite moments in recorded history is when A.J. Dunning starts playing the keyboard riff, but he modulates it to the major key from the minor key. So it's like, oh, he's playing. No, he's not playing the same thing. It was still a cool moment. I love the way this song rises and falls. I, I love everything about it. Um, it's a forever track for me. Uh, I, I make a point of listening to it still fucking 25, 26 years later, about once a week. I'm like, hey, when's the last time I listened to Photograph? It's not Blinded by the Light by Manfred Mann's Earth Band, but it's uh, Photograph is up there on my list of all-time favorite songs. Okay, start off with that synth line, a thumping drum beat and a crisp bass line, and you've got my attention. The pre-chorus has some unexpected chords that sound a little bit dissonant, and I like that too. The chorus is fairly solid and doesn't take me out of the song. Nice. A.J. Dunning's solo won't set the world on fire, but none of these players are virtuosos, so I would say it fits the song, and I mean that as a half-assed compliment. The lyrics are literally about a photograph and how it freezes a moment in time. The person who owns the picture and looks at it will bring their own memories, their own stories, their own perceptions of the subject in the picture in any way they want to see it. Look, this sure as shit ain't Def Leppard's photograph, or even Ringo Starr's. But at least it ain't Nickelback, you know what I mean, fellas? <laughs> this was the first single that reached number 15 on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Tracks chart. The following track is Ominous Man, written by Brian Vander Ark. John, how about this one? Well, I, I think you have to love anything that opens with the suggestion of a restraining order. <laughs> I should be half a mile from here. Yes, you should, because you're a creepy stalker and you won't <laughs> leave her alone. And le let me admit, I've been this guy. But I was also 15 and I didn't realize that it was creepy. <laughs> uh, thankfully, the girl's mother seemed to understand but I do have to question her decision to loan me her hardback copy of Catcher in the Rye. But I digress. The song picks up a groove that, uh, that I like. It's, it's hypnotic. It's kind of like a cobra enticing you onto its fangs. Uh, I love the way the keyboard line plays. It, it's almost dissonant in the background, but it's, it's still in the right key. Uh, and, and when it and the lead guitar start playing off of each other is a cool thing. But 
the late modulation in the song where everything goes up half a step. The way Brian Vanderark plays the guitar figure at the beginning, it's, it's a G chord with open strings ringing. So when they modulate that half step up, there's almost no way to, to keep that shape and use your index finger as a bar chord at the first fret. You need a capo. And there's a, a live acoustic version out there where the pause before that part plays is extended. And in my head, I'm seeing Brian Vanderark slap the capo on real quick. There was a time when this song was rivaling Photograph as my favorite. I mean, I like things that are, that are dark and creepy. Uh, and the personal connection, I mean, maybe that says more about me than anything. <laughs> uh, I love the way it segues into the next song. And speaking of segues, it's something these guys have done on three of their five albums, and they do it more than once per album. They always do it cleverly. I've mentioned Pink Floyd are my favorite band, so anytime I hear two songs blending into each other, it, it trips something in the brain, and I'm like, oh, what are we doing here? Uh, are they doing it well? Does it suck? Is it contrived? And I feel like their, their segues make sense, uh, it, at least in an internal logic, if nothing else. I like creepy songs. This is a creepy song. It fits the bill for me. Lou. The opening riff wants me to start singing. Don't think about. Don't sing about. <laughs> Turn your head on, baby. Just let me out. <laughs> I get over it quickly, though. At least that's a catchy tune. Right. Um, <laughs> although that's another one that's just imprinted in my head by Big Brother. It blends collective soul with STP. Surprise, surprise. A groovy navel-gazing riff. Scott? Yep. Still there. <laughs> Brian? <laughs> <laughs> Dreamy chorus? Check. Ominous man? How about anonymous man? Oh. Uh, this song just doesn't ever bring me to completion. <laughs> the STP thing is real. When this begins with the pick guitar arpeggios and the plaintive vocals, I'm like, fuck me. I've heard a million songs like this. But then the song kicks in, and there's a neat melodic guitar lick that colors the verses, and I dig that. It does pull me into the song. The chorus is heavier with dirty guitar tones, and it's got a darker vibe, like you were saying, Sean. Like it should have, considering the song title and subject matter, it's not bad either. Our boy's a stalker this time. He'll follow her anywhere she goes. He doesn't care who she's fucking. He's even had to go to court for this, but what do they know about love? My guy is ominous. I mean, amorous. Yeah, amorous. This track's okay. I can listen to it. The next track is Real, written by Brian Vander Ark. do it it's a rocker surprisingly grungier than i expected by the hits of this record 
um, it's a weird way I came into listening to this the first time. I was listening to it completely out of order because I was doing it on Amazon Music and I accidentally hit shuffle <laughs> on. Um, so this was really like the first or second song that I listened to and I thought it was number two. So the Pearl Jam breakdown at 119 is a bit offensive to me as a fan. I can't speak for the actual band, though. The Beatles pulled through the DeLeo brothers' human centipeded asses is what I call this ending. (laughs) And this is the best song in the record. (laughs) And it's under two minutes. Sean. Yeah, this is a short song, so I'm going to try not to take longer than it takes to listen to it. My initial response to this was kind of, okay, what the fuck is this? Sounds like it's a song about a young boy discovering masturbation while spying on his sister making out with her boyfriend. I, I mean, if it wasn't catchy, mo- melodic, and, 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 and reasonably rocking, I might be creeped out. But rock and roll has always been about sexual transgressions. So, yeah, that's pretty much all I got. I dig it, but I kind of feel like I shouldn't. So this is supposed to be the short, quick, energetic rocker. It only clocks in at a minute 53, and it's got a quicker tempo. Those dirty chords, a circus-style organ part, more melodic bass, and la-la-la backing vocals. The lyrics are a bit on the dirty side, too. Young boy is being babysat by his older sister, and she tries to occupy him with toys and action figures to play with while she sneaks off to get real. So her boy quietly follows her and secretly catches her, either pleasuring herself or maybe she's getting it on with her boyfriend. But what's a healthy young man to do? The same thing. Spank his monkey into a white handkerchief, that's what. And a boy, just don't let big sis catch you whacking off to her, you naughty little lad. The following track is Penny is Poison, written by A.J. Dunning and Brian Vanderark. Sean, let's have it. After some 10 songs of listening to Brian Vanderark bitch about the fairer sex, uh, the genius of the lyrics in this song to me is, is his revelation that he doesn't mind because he's done this before himself. He's used someone in the same way he feels used by her. You know, he was previously a penny himself. We know who we are. Kind of an implication that there's a, a deliberateness on both of their parts. And that's about all the cohesion I can get out of this. The lyrics are kind of oblique, sort of like Michael Stipe or John Lennon when he was tripping. I'd be curious to know if the lyrics came first or if the melody came first, because usually you can tell if, if somebody wrote lyrics first or if they tried to make lyrics fit a melody. It kind of sounds like he's just stringing words together to make them fit, but I don't mind. Lou. The first thing I heard is Pearl Jam. Maybe because it sounds like a strat plugged into the you know, plugged right into a Fender twin. Mm. But it, it does kind of sound like McCready's tone. Right. Uh, 
and then he opens his mouth. <laughs> and it, it morphs into STP by the first verse. The keyboard has an inter- that interesting flavor that I keep I, that I'm liking. It's like John Lord playing on one of those Magnus Mall organs. I'm I'm hearing a faint blind melon thing going on, like I did earlier. Soup era. There's a call and response harmony thing going on that I can't put my finger on, but but I'll bet it's not theirs. That's all I got. So the initial guitar tone that begins this track is kind of tinny and it's horrid and it kind of ruins the sound of this song for me. <laughs> you said Mike McCready. I'm like, oh shit. I didn't think he was that bad. Ugh. It does finally settle into a bland mid-tempo alt-rock snooze fest. I mean, even the organ solo is dull and lifeless. All the players are sleepwalking through this. Plus, we're back to bored Brian. I wondered where that fucking guy went. He's with Penny, who's not good for him, and he knows it. She's poison, but he don't mind. He was poisoned to the last chick he was with, so he's in good company. They know who they are. I almost fell asleep at the wheel of my car listening to this. I nearly hit a telephone pole. I'm, 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 that's a true story, and I'm even kidding. It's so fucking bland. It's oral narcotic. This bitch is Aaron's Stinky Stinker. I can see that. The penultimate track is Cattle, written by Brian Vander Ark. have it that goes out to sam george (laughs) (laughs) cattle is a grunge light version of tears for fears is head over heels somebody make it stop (laughs) (laughs) is that it (laughs) cheers everyone (laughs) (laughs) sean Hey, you know, I, I love the fact that that's all Lou had because this is the song I was referring to earlier that also reminded me of the 80s, but not Tears for Fears. It's almost note for note, Be Near Me by ABC. And as someone who was a teenager in the 80s, it hits a soft spot in my heart. I mean, I didn't like this song at the time, but ABC struck me as one of those bands. I was always going to know who they were. They took the Brian Ferry thing and made it really marketable. Uh, Martin Page, isn't that the lead singer's name? I don't even know. Uh, wh- whoever he is, he's he's a blue-eyed soul, yeah, but his soul is like Joe Cocker's or Paul Carrick's. It's, it's legitimate for a limey. Something about a lot of the songwriting on this album reminds me of the 80s, and I don't know if Jerry Harrison had any influence on that or not, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that kind of sounds familiar, even when I hadn't heard it before. There's something here my heart recognizes, and yeah, I know how fucking dumb that makes me sound. I don't care I said it, it's there. It's in this song. And whenever I hear it, I, I feel like I should be seeing the video on MTV as I'm getting ready for school in my freshman year. See what I did there? 
Yet another plain old mid-tempo alternative rock number, but there are two things that set this apart for me. One is that piano sound that kind of sounds like a synth playing a piano patch, playing that melodic phrase that pops up in the music now and again. And the second is some more decent melodic bass playing from Brad Vanderark. Good on you, dude. More bored Brian vocals, so we're trending comatose again, and the lyrics are a bit vague, but to me they're a comment on the dating scene. It's a meat market, a cattle call. Everybody knows everybody in the internet age. We say whatever we think the other person wants to hear if it'll get us into their pants. I do like the line in the chorus, I don't really know anybody in love. I don't want to know anybody in love, because when I'm in my grumpier moments, I could definitely relate to that sentiment. <sighs> <laughs> one more track to go, Aaron. One more track to go. And that brings us to the final track, Veneer, written by Brian Vander Ark. How about this last one, Sean? So my notes have two question marks at the beginning here. This seems to be about driving along a specific patch of highway in Michigan. I can't be sure, but I've Googled, you know, uh, 51 or 31 or whatever highway they say it is. And it appears to be like a not really long stretch of highway in Michigan. I've had acid trips that this song seems to be describing, and that's not a bad thing. I've had some great times that I remember fondly, if fragmentedly. And this song sounds like something I might have been trying to write in the summer of 92 when I was living on acid in an Aerostar minivan. Uh, but he got it right, I guess. Uh, I never finished it. Uh, the lyrics paint pictures, and I love the stately pace of the song. It sounds majestic to me, and it's a great way to fade an album out if that's how you're going to end an album. The vocal harmonies really shine on this track, and that's something that the Verve Pipe are known for. They like to sing counter melodies. It's uh, it's not my favorite song on the album. I guess it's it's good that it's in the last place, but I don't hate it. It's kind of there. That's all I got. Lou, we still we still doing this? <laughs> this is like the friend that won't leave. <laughs> You were at a conversation like a half hour ago, and this guy still wants to go through your records and have another beer. <laughs> this song goes nowhere. Despite it being the longest track, I'm, I'm glad this is over. Uh, it had some moments, but I'm glad it's over. Thank you. <laughs> it's the slowly rolling road trip song. Gentle, lazy tempo, building up to a simmer and never boils. Organ providing background atmosphere. Tons of reverb on everything. Phased guitar and backing vocals floating past. Brian's description of driving on Highway 31. He's doing 85 miles an hour, but you wouldn't know it the way he's singing like he took four Valium. 
It's a rainy day. He sees kids jumping in puddles, rows of animals with green-stained teeth from wet grass, lavender skies and ivory clouds. The Verve Pipe is clearly going for a grunge-light-style atmospheric closer and badly missing the mark. There's a lyric here that's repeated throughout this track that completely sums up how I feel about this. Indifferent, they watch the rainfall. Yes, Brian Vander Ark, that's exactly right. Indifferent. Now that the track by track is wrapped up, we'll go into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0 to 5 system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which is Brian Vander Ark's freshman girlfriend. <laughs> Sean, what are your final thoughts on Villains? This is an album that's a snapshot of a very specific period of my life. Uh, to me, it's it's one of those albums that reminds me that, you know, rock music and pop music and wh- whatever you want to call it, 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 it's something that has legs. It can stick around. It is an art form that people can take seriously and you can keep with you for your entire life. You know, when, when, I, when I first got turned on to this band, they were on the radio with Space Hog and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and... I felt like they had what it took to stay in that company, but you know, anything I have to say after that has nothing to do with this album. I love this album. It's one of my all time favorites. It's a keeper. Uh, it's, it's an album that lays out the blueprint for an album. I want to make someday, just like sonically speaking. Um, and that's more to do with Jerry Harrison than the band, but I'll give this album a five because even though the freshman feels like a late addition and I feel like the album survives well without it, it it doesn't hurt anything by being there. When I listen to the album beginning to end, I don't hate the freshman while it's playing because I've got the right version. So, you know, my version of the album is a five. The versions I've seen out there, and I've seen a copy of this album for $30 in an FYE. And I never understood that. It wasn't an import. It didn't have anything special on it. It was just a copy of Villains by the Verve Pipe, but they wanted 30 bucks for it. And uh, I didn't buy that one. I got one for a fi- in place of a $5 tip from a stripper. But um, <laughs> it's an album I'm glad I met. Uh, we're, we're great friends. We're going to be lifelong buds. Lou? That CD from that stripper is worth more than that $30 one. Let's just get that clear right away. (laughs) And good on you, dude. Um, I like you, man. I really do. Um, Oh, thanks. You're I'm a fan of yours as it happens. And, and thank you. And, and a great show, uh, you know, for your, I guess this is your first show doing. It is. Yeah. Well, you, you did phenomenally. Um, and we can all have differences of opinion. Um, yeah, that's and, what makes uh, the world go round. I really have a very different opinion, um, which there's nothing wrong with yours. And, you know, if it's it's a special album in your life, then then good on you. And I'm glad that, you know, music can touch you like that, just like it touches me. But my final thoughts on on this album are it's a tip of your hat to your heroes when you're drawing from something 20, 30 years before you, even 10. And I get that. But the stuff these guys are coming up with, 
were stabs at what was popular at the same time frame, like maybe two years before. And to me, it came across like uh, now that's what I call music, grunge light edition. <laughs> There's really nothing new here at all. It's It all just smells of RCA corporate record company bullshit that latched on to this tired scene by this point and wrung every last flannel colored drop out of it. All this record does is make me want to go listen to STP. And I never thought I'd say that in a sentence again. When STP was popular, I wasn't a huge fan because they were corporate's answer to Nirvana and Pearl Jam. And I thought Wylan wasn't much of a front man. He was laying all over the stage and just been generally being wasted on stage all the time. It was just, it was, I don't know. I didn't think they put, even put on a good show. So these guys have it stacked against them as soon as I hear it because of that sound that they have. And this is an even more watered down version of that. Like what an A&R man would have dictated or thought we wanted. Uh, after I reviewed this record, I went and pulled out STP's core and tiny music and purple. And then I remembered what derivative crap STP was. And I couldn't get through the first four songs of core before I was like, all right, fuck this. And I threw on a Pearl Jam album. <laughs> I, I said earlier that these guys are the nickelback of grunge. They've got all the ingredients, but it's like hostess cupcakes or better yet, tasty cake. Do you have taste, <laughs> tasty cake? You know, instead of homemade cupcakes, you know, they have the sound, the riff, the sullen vocals, the ponytail lyrics, you know, depressing, but, but it's prefab. They're, you know, it's, it's what yeah. they think we want. There's lots of chemicals and preservatives to make it all pretty on the shelf, but when you take a bite out of it, it's kind of dry and tasteless. It's been said that each era of music was based over the years on the, each generation's few record industry executives that steered popular music according to their personal tastes, which I find totally appalling. But I can believe it. They did studies on chord progressions, verse structures, beats per minute, particular keys and songs that charted very favorably. And they found out that each era had a formula. And those formulas coincided with well-known decision makers of the, the record industry. This mm -hmm. record is one of those. And I'm not saying anybody shouldn't like it. I'm just saying it takes like no chances, no risks of being original. I find it derivative of its contemporaries. And it plays to me like Muzak of the 90s. It's a tasty cake cupcake. Bland, flavorless, and safe. It ain't no chicken cutlet. This band falls into the same hole as Bush for, does for me. It's lots of surface and no depth. And I'll give it's it a two. <laughs> it, it's not horrible, but it's not great. It's just, it's not anything to me. I'm, I'm sorry. But, you know... It's been an interesting couple of weeks. <laughs> By the end of 1993, The Verve Pipe had released two independent albums, the first EP, I've Suffered a Head Injury, and the first LP, Pop Smear, which gained the band a strong following in their native Michigan, particularly in the Kalamazoo and East Lansing areas, and drew them major label interest. 
1995, they signed with RCA Records and got to work recording Villains with Jerry Harrison of the Talking Heads as producer, which came out in March 1996 and became a hit, selling 1.5 million copies, largely due to the success of the single The Freshman. Unfortunately, the Verve Pipe couldn't maintain the momentum and their subsequent releases failed to make a dent in the charts and the band quietly went on hiatus in 2001. They reconvened in 2009 and still exist today, though their salad days are clearly long gone. So for me, this album is the epitome of why I struggled so much with the music of the 90s, particularly the post-grunge late 90s. Between the alternative rock, grunge light onslaught that this is representative of, and the rise of new metal rap and hip-hop, I just checked out. None of this music appealed to me, and the 90s just became a dismal musical wasteland in my ears. Now look, I don't hate this. There are some elements of certain songs I kind of like, I've said that. It's guitar-driven rock, so it should be up my alley. But there's no kick-ass riffs. Everything just sounds serviceable, bland, cookie-cutter. The singer is ungodly dull and far inferior to the grunge vocalist he's trying to emulate. And this kind of shit was all over the radio for the rest of the decade. Matchbox 20, Third Eye Blind, Candlebox, Gin Blossoms, Creed, Hootie and the Fucking Blowfish, The Verve Pipe? What's the fucking difference? Now, I know there are plenty of fans of these bands that hate my guts right now, and you made a good case for this band, Sean. And I fully acknowledge this is probably a product of my age and especially my personal musical bias. I don't knock anyone who likes this stuff. If you put it on, I'm not going to throw up or anything. It's listenable. But ultimately, it makes almost no impression on me. I listened to this album over 15 times in preparation for this podcast, and I still can't remember how most of these tracks go. It goes in one of my ears and out the other. I give Villains a two, and if I took anything away from this episode, I can say that at least I love the big hit off this album, Bittersweet Symphony Rules. Now we'd like to thank Sean Ellis for coming on the podcast and enduring our company. I hope it wasn't too bad for you. No, guys, I, I had a blast. I, I hope we can do this again sometime. This was really cool. All yeah. right. Cool. I, if I can ask a newbie question real quick, I'm, I'm relatively new to podcasts in general. Lou, do you have a show of your own? He should. No, well, there, no, I, I don't actually because I'm, I'm much better. It's a single person it just doesn't happen. I, I need other guys. So it's uh, Aaron's Aaron's my oh, man. Fuck, man. Tap me in sometime. <laughs> well, plus Lou, you, you've, you've like kind of taken the, the bull by the horns on the bonus episodes and things like that. So you have, you have your own projects too. Yeah. Well, it turned me on to that band, man, the, the, the fish episode. Um, I, that, would, that was, was your an baby. experiment. Yeah. So that was an experiment that worked. So, you know, we're, we're still yeah, we're looking for other bands for that. And, uh, we have the gimme five thing, which is yours. So Sean, is there anything you want to personally plug or promote? Uh, you know what there is, but everything I'm involved with right now is in states of pre-production where anything can still go wrong. So I don't want to try to pimp something that's not going to come out. But I'm about to start work on an album, and I'm in the middle of editing a film that I wrote, directed, and have to compose the music for. I, I kind of have my hands in a bunch of different stuff. 
far right. out, man. Excellent. Keep in touch. Yeah. Oh, I will, man. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna keep listening, man. You guys are awesome. I I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. And that's gonna do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com or also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. If you feel the podcast has value and would like to make a contribution to support it, please head over to Patreon and the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews page and sign up on one of the monthly tiers. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron. I'm considerably sober, Lewis. See ya! Is that all you got for this? Oh, wait, am I in on this? I thought I already did this one. No. Lou went first. Oh, oh shit. I'm sorry, man. Oh, yes. this, is, this is Reverend Girl. Reverend Girl. Were you Girl. talking about that for villains? I was a little confused. Cause... Yeah, I, I, I thought you were giving me your take on villains. No, 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 no. We were doing Reverend Girl. That's Reverend right. Girl. Okay, well, Reverend yeah. Girl. Okay. How's it going so far, Sean? Oh, dude, this is great, man. Good. You guys are killing me over here. Good, good. I can't wait for the deja vu when I listen to it when it's done and go, wait a minute, why is this familiar? I've already I'm, heard I'm, this episode. I'll be dipped in shit if I wasn't singing um, myself all day today and um, drive you mild. I, I have that descending power chord riff in my head today. <laughs> I've got it, I've got it uh, recorded, dipped in shit, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be dipped in shit. <laughs>